You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Today's show is also brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Blood Groove, Andrew, Torso and Pinches, Ironside, M.D., Jacob, Scuttlebutt, Matt, Hartman, Gingrich, Misfit, Lisa, Clan Roland, Bigbeard, Willie P., Schmarls, Buggy the Clown, Leslie the Spice Chonger, The Admiral Benbow, Chairboat, Cannon Monkey, Axios, Gunsway Sally, Pitlock, The Sextant, Jack of the South Seas, Lost Again, The Navigator, Governor Roop, Gin Soaked Jim, Workman, Rum Runner, Skipper, Sawbones, Scarlet Dawn, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Today we're going to return to the story of the Pirates of the Fancy, Henry Every's men who raided the Fata Muhammad and the Ganji Sawai. We've been following William Kidd and his crew for a while, right into the spring and early summer of 1697, and they're still out there, ostensibly hunting the very pirates to whom we're going to turn today. But the events we're concerned with today take place in the autumn of 1696. We left the Pirates of the Fancy after they ditched the Fancy itself. What had once been the greatest frigate sailing the high seas ended her days as a wreck in Nassau Harbor. The Pirates gave the Fancy to Governor Nicholas Trott of the Bahamas, and he may have planned to use her for harbor defense, but the fancy was barely seaworthy after her journey of three years and ten thousand miles, so she was just left to rot. We do know that a few of the pirates stayed there in Nassau, but we can't say how many. One or two may even have still been hanging around when Blackbeard and Ben Hornigold arrived on the scene. Mostly, though, they scattered into the wind, a few of them bought a sloop and sailed for French Guiana, where they disappeared into the mists of history. Most of the pirates sailed for America, you know, English North America. And that was really the safest bet. Colonial ports were always hungry for new people, especially if they had some money with them. 
The money changers in places like Charlestown and New York and Providence did a bustling business for a while. The mint in Boston certainly smelted a shocking amount of Mughal silver and gold. They would have done so, of course, no questions asked, just with an equally shocking commission. Beyond those financial transactions, though, the shipwrights and carpenters and tailors in those port cities also had a busy few weeks. The pirates were busy buying new homes, or maybe a farm, or maybe another ship into which they invested all of their winnings and started new lives. Beyond that, the pirates brought in a bunch of trade goods, and exotic stuff too, spices and silks and jewelry that filled the shops and the pockets of the shopkeepers for some time. The pirates were good for the economy. It would have been foolish to turn them into the authorities. For now, anyway. None of the pirates who sailed for America were ever prosecuted for their crimes. A few would be investigated at some point, most of them years down the line, but the evidence that they were the same men who had sailed with Henry Every was lacking, so they were all just released eventually. Nearly all of the pirates who were arrested were among those who sailed back to Europe aboard the Sea Flower or the Isaac. Henry Every was among that number, although he was never picked up. You'll remember that he disappeared. He absconded with his former quartermaster's pretty new bride and was never seen again. The rest of the pirates who sailed back to Europe arrived in Western Ireland. You may remember a Sheriff Bell who caught wind of their movements and tracked some of them down. It was really quite the chase. He used good old-fashioned tracking to hunt down at least one group of the pirates, you know, following their horses' hoofprints over hill and dale and examining their campsites every morning. But after following them for some days, they arrived at Dublin. If the pirates had been circumspect, they could have disappeared into the streets of Dublin, and no one, Sheriff Bell or otherwise, would have heard from them again. But pirates are not known for being circumspect. This is episode 254, The Trial. We could spend an entire episode talking about the pirates who were picked up by the authorities, spent a little bit of time in jail, but were ultimately released. Most of them just paid their bail, and a healthy bribe on the side, and were allowed to go about their way. They no longer had the fortune they had been hoping for, but enough to get by for a while at least. A few lied their way out of their circumstances and actually got to keep their money, although these were few and far between. But the pirates who concern us today were arrested mostly because they just couldn't keep their mouths shut. You know, maybe they were in a pub somewhere, having a pint, when the balladeer started to sing about the great and noble Henry Every, a handsome, dashing, noble son who makes all the ladies swoon, and then from the bar, ha, let me tell you about Henry Every. Or maybe the pirates bought a round for everyone in the bar to impress someone, maybe a pretty Irish flower, or maybe they were just bragging about their exploits over a round of dice. One way or another, they had to let somebody know what they had done. It was so cool. At which point, invariably, the authorities caught wind of it and arrested them. 
There are eight such names we need to talk about today. The first I want to discuss is John Dan, and his arrest is worth a bit of note. John Dan arrived in Ireland aboard the Sea Flower alongside Henry Every, but on the voyage over, John Dan had an idea. Rather than exchange his coins and lose a whole bunch of money, or putting his coins in a chest which was very noticeable, John Dan decided to sew his coins, over 1,000 pounds in Mughal gold and silver, into the lining of his jacket. His jacket was finished by the time he reached Irish shores, and he wore it all the way to Dublin. When the authorities there in Dublin began to crack down, John Dan managed to slip out just before the hammer fell. He booked passage to Wales and made his way overland to London. He didn't stay in London long, though, as everybody was looking for him, so he returned to his hometown of Rochester. Once he arrived, he booked a room in the local inn and presumably felt comfortable enough to take off his coat. He went out for the day, probably to make contact with his family and old friends, and when he did... The maid went into his room to tidy up. She was folding his clothes when she picked up his jacket and could barely lift it. You can imagine the scene, you know, feeling around and realizing that this thing is full of coins. The maid went to find the sheriff, which, you know, you've really got to respect that move. If I were a maid in some small town inn, and I found a coat full of gold coins, I'm not sure that I would go to the sheriff. I might take that coat for my own. I could always just disappear with it, or if I decided to stay on and use that coin for something in the future, a rainy day fund, you know, and the pirate came looking for it, I might say, Oh, your coat? It's gone missing? Maybe we should go to the sheriff. But this maid had more honor than that, and she did go to the sheriff to report what was clearly an illicit amount of money. The sheriff investigated this strange coat and found it to be full of gold coins of Moorish make. When John Dan returned to the inn, he was promptly arrested. And this was the first major arrest, the first noteworthy arrest of the fancy pirates, it was a major win for a council of men back in London who had been tasked with hunting these pirates down. And that council really needed this win. They'd been established by the king when it became clear that this was no ordinary run-of-the-mill piracy they were dealing with. Their council included Isaac Hublon, one of the Hublon brothers who had an interest in the Spanish expedition, it also included members of the boards of the Bank of England and the East India Company, as well as some admirals in the Royal Navy. It was a powerful institution, but thus far they'd had no success to speak of. They came close when the governor of Jamaica wrote a letter informing them that Henry Every had been spotted in the Bahamas. They dispatched a ship with letters and officers of the law and admonitions, Nicholas Trott was detained and questioned quite closely, but he maintained that the pirates were already gone, and for the most part they were. 
He also told the officers that when these men arrived, he had no idea who they were or what that ship was. He said that he had only received word of the pirates after they had already departed, otherwise he certainly would have arrested them. And since New Providence Island was still basically just a backwater, it was almost believable. The officers were pretty sure he was lying, but they couldn't prove it, and Henry Every was nowhere to be seen, so Trot mostly got off the hook. There were a number of these kinds of close calls, you know, nosy Nellies in small colonial towns saying, hmm, these ruffians have a lot of gold, maybe I'll write the local magistrate. But once those letters reached the pertinent authorities, the pirates were already long gone. The council, in the meantime, issued hundreds of notices to governors of colonies and presidents of factories and magistrates of cities and basically anybody whose job it was to enforce the law to inform them that these pirates were on their way to keep an eye open. They dispatched ships to patrol for these pirates who stopped dozens of innocent merchant ships out in the world. It was a massive worldwide manhunt that involved a lot of resources and a lot of manpower and still nothing. Until, that is, a maid in Rochester picked up a really heavy coat. It does make you wonder, though, how many maids in how many inns picked up a similarly heavy coat or something to that effect and were less honorable than this maid in Rochester? How many pirates avoided the gallows because they were extorted by someone? Of course, we can't know. John Dan, though, was only the first of the Pirates of the Fancy who was arrested there in Europe. Over the next several weeks, men of the Fancy were picked up in Liverpool and Plymouth and Newcastle, and several in Dublin. These names included Joseph Dawson, William May, an older man, remember, James Lewis, John Sparks, Philip Middleton, still just a boy of thirteen, and the fresh-faced young man William Bishop. And then there's Edward Forsyth. Forsyth was actually the first pirate to be arrested. Sheriff Bell picked him up when he was on his manhunt over Hill and Dale. But he put him in a local cell and then went on to hunt the rest of the pirates, so it was a few more weeks before anyone realized that Forsyth had been arrested. All of these men and boys were transported to Newgate Prison in London. Now, Newgate, here in 1696, was not the medieval dungeon of so many horrific myths. That prison, which had been really horrific, had been destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. It was rebuilt in 1670, so the facility to which these pirates were taken was only 26 years old, and still in relatively good shape. There were modern latrines available, modern for 1700. The prison cells were not inundated with the cold and the wet, as they had been in the past. But Newgate still wasn't a nice place. You slept on straw, that, if you were lucky, was only infested with fleas. The food was disgusting, and the water was less than clean. They did have an exercise yard, that was a new, modern improvement, so 
The prisoners were able to get some sun, but... You know, have you seen A Clockwork Orange? Do you remember the small little courtyard with these huge high stone walls in which the prisoners were made to walk in a circle? The Newgate Yard was much like that. Imagine walking in a slow circle on hard stones chained to the men in front of you and behind. If you raised your eyes, you were almost certainly beaten by one of the guards, and when you were done, you had to go back to a tiny filthy cell, only to wait on some thin gruel and oily water. People died in the Newgate prison all the time, from beatings from outright murder and mostly from disease. Everyone was sick. The women in Newgate Prison, and there was a whole wing devoted to the women, they had to trade sexual favors to the guards for not even preferential treatment. Just like to get enough food to live, they had to pay with their bodies. Maybe you might consider their treatment preferential in that they got a bath once a month and clean hay once a week, but that's about it. It was a nightmare inside the walls of Newgate Prison. Oddly, though, the six pirates who were held there probably got better treatment than any of the other prisoners. They got better food and better portions, and even probably some decent medical treatment. See, these six pirates were to be dragged into the Old Bailey, and they were going to stand trial. It was going to be... Not just a hearing. It was going to be a very public trial. You know, a trial of the century, complete with reporters and transcripts. The Crown wanted everyone to see what happened at this trial. The pirates had to go down, and they had to do so publicly. If, that is, England was to have any hope of keeping her position in the world. A lot of crowned heads around the world were going to be watching... None more closely than Grand Mughal Aurangzeb. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Step into the hidden corridors of the past with Hometown History, where every episode uncovers the untold stories and secrets nestled in the streets and alleys of our own backyards. We bring history to life, revealing the extraordinary in the ordinary from local legends to forgotten tales that shape the communities we know today. Tune in to Hometown History and embark on a journey through time, right from where you are. John Dan was not the first to be arrested, but he was the first that the state knew about. And John Dan was not going to stand trial. He turned state's witness or I think they actually called it King's Witness at the time. But either way, naturally he turned over his treasure, and he agreed to testify against his former shipmates to avoid jail time. Now this was 
betrayal. Just rank backstabbing, but, you know, he was a pirate, after all. I generally tend to disagree with the sentiment that there is no honor among thieves, but sometimes it's true. But John Dan wasn't alone in that. One of the other arrested pirates agreed to testify as well. Philip Middleton. Now, you may remember Philip Middleton as a young boy. When he climbed aboard the Charles II, he was only ten or maybe eleven. Here during the trial, he was still only thirteen, so you can understand his decision to testify against his former crewmates. He may have hated them for good reason. And despite how we may feel about John Dan making that same decision, we really have to hand it to these two, Dan and Middleton, because their testimonies, their long, involved accounts of what the pirates got up to are really the basis of everything we know about Henry Avery and the Pirates of the Fancy. For our purposes, a history podcast about pirates, stool pigeons are kind of our bread and butter. Interestingly, the pirates, the alleged pirates who had been arrested, called on none other than William Dampier for their defense. Remember, Dampier had been aboard the Spanish expedition as a member of it before the mutiny. It seems like these men believed Dampier would prove they never intended to turn pirate. The pirates were granted legal counsel, who informed them that they were being charged with a slew of high crimes, including piracy, of the Fata Muhammad and the Gunsway. And that's the name they used, the Gunsway. Finally came the morning of 19 October 1696. The court at the Old Bailey sat at the corner of Newgate Street and Old Bailey, and that morning the intersection was lined with spectators. Henry Every was the biggest name in London, probably in all of England, excepting maybe the king, and that's a maybe. Everyone wanted to catch a glimpse of the pirates who had sailed under his flag. However, the prisoners were not going to enter through the front door. There was a side door attached to Newgate Prison through which they were marched. But if the spectators stretched and maybe stood on the shoulders of someone else, they could sneak a peek through some of the high windows. And then, when the court officials and the jurors and the witnesses and anybody else who was going to be inside the room did walk through the front door, everybody rushed forward to try and peek inside. It almost turned dangerous. The men with muskets and pikes guarding the entrance had to push back a sea of humanity. Soon enough, though, everybody was in place and the trial itself could begin. And when it did begin, it was fairly dull. All the honorable gentlemen were named and recognized by the court. Most notably was the Right Honorable High Judge Sir Charles Hedges. And you may remember Sir Charles as the man who threw out the lawsuit brought against James Hublone by the men of the Spanish expedition, those who had not turned pirate but were almost sold to the King of Spain. Judge Hedges admonished these men who brought that lawsuit, partly because they were clearly associated with pirates, and partly because they just couldn't accept that such a great and noble man as James Hublon had the right to sell them to the King of Spain. The Right Honorable High Judge Sir Charles Hedges was a bad person. 
Then they introduced the prosecution who was recognized by the court. Notably here was Sir John Holt, the Lord Chief Justice of the King's Bench. He was the royal agent at court, kind of like having the Attorney General on the prosecution. He wouldn't be leading the prosecution, though that honor went to a Sir Henry Newton. And then the defense counsel was named, and all the jurors were named, and then even the notable men in the crowd that were there merely to observe the trial. This went on for some time. This trial would not be open to the public, but anyone who had an interest and money and influence was invited. Finally, once these formalities were all seen to, the accused were named. First came William May, and he cut quite a sad figure. He was over sixty by this point, and in very poor health. Then there was the nineteen-year-old John Sparks, kind of a gangly boy, but there was also William Bishop, a few years older by this point, but handsome and youthful. Then came Edward Forsyth, and Joseph Dawson, and James Lewis. They tacked one name on at the end, though. Henry Every was named and charged in absentia. The six men who were present could barely see the courtroom, though. There was a huge mirror in place, positioned to reflect the morning sunlight onto their faces. They said that this was to illuminate their faces to better show their expressions, I guess so the jury could, I don't know, see the guilt there. After the boos and hisses from the crowd were over, the charges were finally officially levied against these men. Naturally, there was the piracy against the Fatah Muhammad and the Gunsway, and the murder that they engaged in, but also the rape of many of the passengers of the Ganji Sawai. By all accounts, this was quite a trial. When the men were asked to enter a plea, Joseph Dawson broke down in tears. He begged mercy for his crimes, from the court and also from God. He said he never wanted to do what he had done, but he did it nonetheless. Joseph Dawson pleaded guilty. The other five, though, pleaded not guilty. In their opening arguments, the prosecution dragged everything out. The battles at sea, the robbery, obviously, the torture and the murder, but most of all, they lingered on the mass rape of the Mughal women, including that princess. This was, well, first of all, in a cynical view, it was salacious and shocking, and it made good copy. Moreover, though, this particular topic was of special interest to the Grand Mughal, whose family had been so offended, and, of course, the rest of his court. They all wanted to see these men hanged for all of their crimes, but the rape especially. Finally, though, the prosecution reached the crescendo of their opening arguments. Sir Henry Newton gave this end to his address. Quote, Piracy so much exceeds theft or robbery on land as the interest and concerns of kingdoms and nations are above those of private families or particular persons. Suffer pirates, and the commerce of the whole world must cease, which this nation has deservedly so great a share in, and reaps mighty advantage by. 
If they shall go away unpunished when it is known whose subjects they are, the consequences may be to involve the nationals concerned in war and blood, to the destruction of the innocent English in those countries, the total loss of Indian trade, and thereby the impoverishment of the kingdom. End quote. There's a reason I wanted to talk about state power in relation to piracy. And it's right there in black and white. Piracy so much exceeds theft or robbery on land because it concerns the nation and its trade and its power. The prosecution ends its argument by saying if these men are allowed to go free and everybody knows that they're English, England itself might falter and fail. The trial that followed over the preceding couple of days was everything you could want a court trial to be. Admonitions of pure evil, graphic depictions of rape and murder, men denying their intent or active participation in these vile acts and being called down repeatedly. William Bishop, though, especially broke the court's heart. He was only a boy when he joined the Spanish expedition, and when the mutiny happened, he had no idea it was going to happen. He was caught up in the wave, and those mutineers promised him riches and glory. This is the right decision, young man. You better take it. But he told them the reality was anything but glorious. It was hardship and hunger. And then it was brutality and violence. Bishop never wanted to hurt anyone. And when those men dragged those poor women away, well, he heard such horrible things that... This trial, and all of its intricacies, its ins and outs, its ups and downs, could fill up episodes. Probably. You know, I'm guessing. I don't really know, because nobody knows much of anything about this trial. Because after all of the drama took place at the Old Bailey, the jury sympathized with the pirates and found them not guilty. What's more, because they charged Henry Every in absentia, this English court just found Henry Every not guilty of piracy, and that was legally binding. The records of this trial, from court officials and journalists and even the people in the crowd, were all destroyed. The English crown did their best to erase that this trial had ever taken place. If it got back to the Grand Mughal that they had found Henry Every and his men not guilty, that might mean war. To their credit, they did not throw out the verdict. The court did not arrest the jurors and threaten them with starvation and fine them a year's wages, no. This was officially what the court had found, and they were going to abide by it, but they had other tricks up their sleeve. Next time, the court is going to try again. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us ratings and reviews, and everybody who has recommended this show. Without all of you, this wouldn't be possible. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Great War, a World War I history podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. 
Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, you can do so at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight